Can you dream of a world immune to cancer? Hello everyone, my name is Nick and I'm the host of the annual live stream for The Cure where content creators and podcasters from around the world join me to raise money for the Cancer Research Institute and Immunotherapy Research, which is training the body's immune system to fight against all forms of cancer. Over the past seven years, thanks to the power of indie podcasters and the indie podcasting community and listeners just like you listening to this right now, we have raised over $90,000. And as I record this now, the eighth annual live stream for The Cure is barreling down upon us really, really quickly in just about two weeks. So join us, please, from May 29th through June 1st for 48 hours of amazing content from people all over the world and help us fight for a world immune to cancer. And I'll return you to your regularly scheduled programming. Thank you so, so much. And together, we can make a difference. Spins a web, any size, catches seeds, just like flies, look out, here comes the Spider-Man. In a world overflowing with movies, we need a hero, someone to separate the bad from the good. Hi everyone, I'm Em and welcome to Verbal Diorama episode 155, Spider-Man. This is the podcast that's all about the history and legacy of movies you know and movies you don't. As always, a huge welcome to Verbal Diorama, whether you're a brand new listener to this podcast, whether you are a regular returning listener and you're coming back to this podcast again. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you so much for choosing Verbal Diorama, no matter how you found this podcast. We're going to be talking about the history and legacy of Spider-Man. And I mean, this is a movie that I think everyone knows. If you don't, please go check out Spider-Man. I believe it's on Netflix here in the UK. It's absolutely well worth a watch. This movie turned 20 years old this year. And boy, is this movie a lot of fun. I'm so excited to be talking about the history and legacy of Spider-Man. But before I do, I just want to say a huge thank you to everyone who listened to the previous episodes on Batman and Blade. So what I've been doing is I've been doing a series called Heroes Through the Decades. And I started that series in the 60s with Jason and the Argonauts and then moved into the 70s with Superman, into the 80s with Batman, into the 90s with Blade. And now with Spider-Man, we're going into the new millennium. We're going into the 2000s. And what I've done is I've prefaced all of these episodes with a little bit to basically summarise what those movies have done for heroes and for cinema as well. Ray Harryhausen made us all believe in monsters. Superman made us believe a man could fly. Batman made the caped crusader dark again. Blade gave us an African-American hero. And Spider-Man gave us an origin story of great power and great responsibility in more ways than one. 
but also a story that ordinary nerds could relate to. Because Peter Parker is just a regular guy. He's not an alien. He's not a billionaire. He's not a daywalker. He's just a normal dude who gets bitten by a spider. And then his whole world changes overnight. Spider-Man followed Blade and X-Men and not only showed that the biggest Marvel superhero could come to the big screen, but also that he would break financial records and set the course for not only his own franchise and multiple spin-offs, but also a landmark agreement between Marvel Studios and Sony to share the character. So one day he could appear in the MCU, but that's so far into the future. It's kind of barely worth mentioning because 20 years ago, Spider-Man made history. So let's put on our tight spandex, thwip our organic web shooters and swing into that history. And we're going to start with the trailer for the 2002 Sam Raimi Spider-Man. Who am I? You sure you want to know? If somebody told you I was just your average ordinary guy, not a care in the world, somebody lied. Truth is, it wasn't always like this. There was a time when life was a lot less complicated. Can I take your picture for the school paper? Sure. In this lab, we have 15 genetically enhanced super spiders. There's 14. One's missing. Peter, are you all right? I'm fine. Pete, look, you're changing. I know I'm going to do exactly the same thing at your age. No, not exactly. Wow. Peter, may I introduce my father, Norman Osborne? Great honor to meet you, sir. Harry tells me you're quite the science whiz. You know, I'm something of a scientist myself. Whatever it is, somebody has to stop it. With great power comes great responsibility. This is my gift. Wow. It is my curse. Who are you? Who am I? I'm Spider-Man. Do I get to say thank you this time? You're not Superman, you know. On a school field trip, Peter Parker is bitten by a genetically modified spider. He wakes up the next morning with incredible spider-like powers. After witnessing the death of his Uncle Ben, Parker decides to put his new skills to use in order to rid the city of evil. But someone else has other plans. The Green Goblin sees Spider-Man as a threat and must dispose of him. He realises Spider-Man is none other than timid Peter Parker and goes for his heart, his beloved Aunt May, 
and his girl-next-door crush, Mary Jane Watson. Let's quickly run through the cast of this movie. We have Tobey Maguire as Peter Parker, a.k.a. Spider-Man. Willem Dafoe as Norman Osborn, a.k.a. Green Goblin. Kirsten Dunst as Mary Jane Watson. James Franco as Harry Osborn. Rosemary Harris as May Parker. Cliff Robertson as Ben Parker. J.K. Simmons as J. Jonah Jameson. With cameos in this movie by Octavia Spencer as the wrestling administrator. Elizabeth Banks as Betty Brandt. Bruce Campbell as the wrestling announcer. Joe Manganiello as Flash Thompson. And I had no idea it was him at all until I checked the cast list. Macho Man Randy Savage as Bonesaw McGraw. Lucy Lawless as Punk Rock Girl. Macy Gray as herself. And of course, the legendary Stan Lee as a man who saves a young girl. Spider-Man has a screenplay by David Coop, is directed by Sam Raimi and is based on Spider-Man by Stan Lee and Steve Ditko. So do I really need to go into the origin story of Spider-Man? We all know it, after all, but let's do this one last time. In the pantheon of legendary comic book creations is basically a list of recent verbal diorama episodes. Superman and Batman need zero introduction, and Marvel's equivalent to those characters might just be Spider-Man. But before we talk about his introduction in 1962, we need to go back to 1933 and a defining influence in the character of Spider-Man. Created by Harry Steger, the Spider was a pulp magazine hero and appeared in his eponymous series for 118 issues from 1933 to 1943. The Spider was created as direct competition for the Shadow and, like the Shadow, shares similarities with Batman. Millionaire playboy Richard Wentworth, the last surviving member of a wealthy family, becomes the Spider with a black domino mask, black hat and cape. The Spider was more of a crime fighter than a superhero with powers, but it still provided inspiration for one Mr. Stan Lee. I assume you've heard of him when he was creating a new character he was working on. Lee wanted a character teenagers could relate to after the success of the Fantastic Four. He didn't, however, want the traditional name ending in boy and chose Spider-Man to differentiate the character from Superman and also give him a name he could grow into. Artist Steve Ditko originally intended for the character to wear orange and purple but soon changed into the traditional red and blue design we now know. Lee had to get approval from Marvel publisher Martin Goodman to use the character, which Goodman had several objections to. Lee would push him into agreeing that Spider-Man could debut in Amazing Adult Fantasy No. 15, which would actually be the final issue of that comic, and that final issue was retitled Amazing Fantasy. The only way Goodman would accept Lee's new character would be to debut him in a soon-to-be-cancelled comic, which would be released on the 10th of August 1962 with Jack Kirby providing the cover art instead of Steve Ditko. Ditko's art would remain in the comic, and Kirby and Lee discussed evolving the character based on an old character of Kirby's about an orphaned boy who discovers a magic ring that gives him superpowers. And there is some dispute over who actually created Spider-Man, mostly due to something called the Marvel Method. The process involves the writer presenting a broad storyline for the comic book issue to the artist, the writer and artist working together on a general plan for the issue, or the artist coming up with the narrative on their own. In terms of detail, these broad plots can be all over the place. They could be provided verbally or in the form of a written story outline. 
The artist would then lay out the tail pages based on the plot and the writer would then add dialogue to the completed pages. So in this scenario, the artist is clearly doing a lot more of the components of the comic that people typically connect with writing a comic book. So while Stan Lee received the writing credits and Steve Ditko the art credits, Jack Kirby would claim that Stan Lee had minimal involvement in Spider-Man's creation and according to him, the character was based on an unused character called the Silver Spider that he and Joe Simon had created for the comic Black Magic. Simon contradicted Kirby's narrative in his 1990 autobiography, claiming that Black Magic was not a component and that he came up with the moniker Spider-Man, later altered to the Silver Spider, while Kirby devised the character's origins and abilities. Simon concurred that Kirby had given Lee the initial Spider-Man version and that Lee liked the idea and had Kirby draw sample pages for the new character, but that he didn't like the results. Somewhere along the line, the superpowered magic ring disappeared, and it was Lee who handed Ditko the notion of a youngster bitten by a spider and getting superpowers, which Ditko expanded on to the point where he became the first work-for-hire artist of his generation to originate and control the narrative arc of his series, according to Ditko scholar Blake Bell. When asked about the original creation, Steve Ditko would maintain he still wasn't sure who had the first idea for Spider-Man, but that he considered the published version of Spider-Man as a separate invention from the one he saw in Kirby's five penciled pages. Stan Lee had always validated Steve Ditko's co-credit though, unlike the episode of Batman with Bob Kane and Bill Finger. Amazing Fantasy would end up being revived in 1995 and three new Spider-Man stories would attempt to fill the narrative gap between Amazing Fantasy number 15 and The Amazing Spider-Man number 1, which is as good a time as any to go into Spider-Man's debut in his self-titled comic, The Amazing Spider-Man. A few months after his debut, publisher Martin Goodman examined The Amazing Fantasy final issue's sales numbers and was surprised to discover that it was one of the best-selling comics they'd ever done. So, a solo Spider-Man publication was put together and launched in March 1963. Ditko would leave this after 38 issues and Stan Lee would remain as a writer until issue 100. Spider-Man was unlike other heroes. He was a well-meaning, hard-working teenager, balancing life as a freelance photographer to support his elderly aunt with being everyone's friendly neighbourhood Spider-Man. He was also relentlessly bullied at high school. Issue number one introduced J. Jonah Jameson and the supervillain The Chameleon, as well as Spider-Man's first encounter with the Fantastic Four. His most famous antagonists, Dr. Octopus and Green Goblin, would be introduced in later issues, Doc Ock in issue 3 and the Green Goblin in issue 14. While Green Goblin appeared in issue 14, his alter ego Norman Osborn wasn't introduced until issue 23, mainly to keep the Green Goblin's identity a secret. And last episode on Blade, I talked about the change to the comic's code authority rules. Well, Spider-Man had a part to play in those changes because Previously, the code prohibited depictions of illegal drug use, even in a negative light. The Nixon administration's Department of Health, Education and Welfare encouraged Stan Lee to print an anti-drug message in one of Marvel's best-selling series. Lee chose The Amazing Spider-Man to depict a story arc illustrating the detrimental consequences of substance misuse in issues 96 to 98. They were May to July 1971. Harry Osborn, Peter Parker's best friend, becomes hooked on drugs. When Spider-Man battles the Green Goblin, Harry's father Norman Osborn, he beats the Green Goblin by revealing Harry's drug addiction. Despite the fact that the story contained a strong anti-drug message, 
the Comics Code Authority refused to approve it. Marvel went ahead and published anyway, three issues without the approval or seal of the Comics Code Authority. The issues were so popular that the industry's self-censorship was exposed and the code was changed as a result. The Amazing Spider-Man was continuously published until issue 700 in December 2012 and was the highest numbered American comic still in circulation until its cancellation. It was relaunched in 2014 and was relaunched several more times in the 2010s with a new relaunch this year, 2022, for Spider-Man's 60th anniversary. When it came to live-action depictions of Spider-Man on TV, the first was portrayed by Danny Seagren in Spidey Super Stories, a live-action recurring skit on the original version of the children's television workshop series The Electric Company between 1974 and 1977. The Amazing Spider-Man was also the name of a short-lived TV series which debuted in 1977 and was cancelled after 30 episodes despite decent ratings. It consisted of a pilot TV movie called simply Spider-Man in 1977, followed by two seasons of five and eight episodes in 1978 and 1979, respectively. In it, Peter Parker was played by Nicholas Hammond. Stanley sold the rights to make a primetime live-action TV series to CBS in the mid-70s. And while the series was cancelled, the two-part start of season one was recut to make another TV movie. This was called Spider-Man Strikes Back in 1978. And the series finale was also re-edited to make another TV movie, called Spider-Man The Dragon's Challenge in 1981. Interestingly, these were released by Columbia Pictures, and I'm going to come back to Columbia in a little bit. There was also a Japanese film released in 1978 and a TV show from 1978 to 1979 with Shinji Todo as Takuya Yamashiro, aka Spider-Man. And development of a Hollywood adaptation is it a new feature of this podcast that I like to call Corman, Cannon, Carol Co and Columbia, which deserves a flashy theme song because of that delicious alliteration. So we're going to start with Roger Corman. Roger Corman starts the story in the 80s, who had the options on the rights to make a Spider-Man movie in the early 1980s through Orion Pictures. But honestly, Orion, Cannon, Carol Co and Columbia doesn't quite have the same ring to it. This option expired in 1985, but at the same time, Superman 3 struggled at the box office meaning superhero properties were not the gold dust that they were previously. And Corman's ideas didn't gel well with Stan Lee's, and so basically this idea went nowhere. So we move on from Roger Corman to Canon. Canon Films. Canon Films makes Spider-Man a little bit weird. Stan Lee was on script duty for this production, and producers and cousins, Menahem Golan and Yoram Globus, paid Marvel Comics $225,000 over the five-year option period, wanted to think outside of the box on this take on Spider-Man, and admittedly, Golan and Globus didn't really understand the character at all and thought it was a horror, a literal Spider-Man. So their movie included a mad scientist exposing Peter Parker to radiation and Peter becoming an eight-legged human-spider hybrid. Tom Cruise was apparently the top choice to play this version of Peter Parker and Dr. Octopus was the villain with Bob Hoskins in line for the role. Stan Lee expressed a desire to play J. Jonah Jameson and Joseph Zito was in line to direct. There's even a teaser trailer for this version of the movie that exists on YouTube. I'm going to pop that little piece of sunshine in the show notes for you because it's pretty special. 
so this version of Spider-Man was abandoned. Canon would use the abandoned Spider-Man sets that had already been built for the Jean-Claude Van Damme sci-fi action film Cyborg. Canon was in financial difficulty after Superman IV The Quest for Peace and Masters of the Universe both misfired at the box office and so the company was sold. And as Canon didn't make a Spider-Man movie before April 1990, the rights reverted back to Marvel and Spider-Man went back into his little web of unmade movies until... Carol Co. Carol Co. does some bits with James Cameron. And Carol Co.'s Spider-Man contains the infamous James Cameron scriptment, combining elements of both the script and the treatment. Cameron's 1991 scriptment was 57 pages long, told the Spider-Man origin story with a few changes, as we'll come to, and included villains Electro and Sandman. So this scriptment contained hallucinatory nightmares, a sex scene between Peter and MJ, as well as quite a bit of profanity. Menahem Golan was still involved as now the head of 21st Century Film Corporation, and he kept a number of Canon's properties in lieu of a cash buyout. In 1991, the option for Spider-Man was extended by Carol Co. for Golan through to May 1996, but in April 1992, Carol Co. stopped an active production on Spider-Man citing continued financial and legal issues. Of course, the most famous and main change Cameron put in place in this Carol Co. scriptament was organic web shooters, something Spider-Man never had in the comics, something that would eventually filter down into Sam Raimi's movie, which I'm coming to. But the story is not over for Carol Co., though, as Menahem Golan sued Carol Co. in 1993 due to James Cameron's contract drafted by Carol Co. lawyers which was essentially a copy-paste job of his Terminator 2 contract, which gave Cameron rights on movie and advertising credits, which meant all business trade articles and advertisements made no mention of Menahem Golan. According to Golan, this went against his contractual guaranteed credit as a producer. Carol Co. would sue Viacom and Columbia to recover the broadcast and home video rights, both of whom countersued. By the time 1996 rolled around, and 1996 was a very bad year for a lot of studios, because 1996 was the year that Carol Co., 21st Century, and Marvel all went bankrupt. The story's still not finished, though. MGM, who in 1995 had acquired 21st Century's assets and film library, claimed they also now had the rights to Carol Co.'s Spider-Man and James Cameron's scriptment. MGM also sued 21st Century, Viacom, and Marvel, alleging the original deal between Canon and Marvel was fraudulent. It would be James Bond who would be the catalyst for Sony's Spider-Man deal. Sony wanted to remake Thunderball and start a new official James Bond franchise. And MGM, now owning the Spider-Man rights, wanted to make Spider-Man, but each had a claim to the other's properties. What happened next was a simple trade. Sony would trade James Bond, including Thunderball and Casino Royale, to MGM, and MGM would trade Spider-Man to Sony. And so, with Sony, we move to the final piece of this puzzle, Columbia. Columbia, Columbia, take Spider-Man to the big screen. Woo! And while the deal has been modified going forward, this is still the deal in place. Obviously, they're now partnered with Marvel Studios to make Spider-Man Homecoming, Spider-Man Far From Home, Spider-Man Nowhere Homes, Civil War, etc. Extra emphasis on home there, because for many it felt like the character was home in the MCU. And now part of the canonical multiverse. Retrospectively, all Sony Columbia Spider-Man movies are now canonical in the MCU, and that's pretty astonishing when you consider it's been a 20-year journey. But 
let's start with Sony taking the rights and the reins to Spider-Man and making this movie. So we're in the mid-90s and the reception of Batman and Robin, which I've mentioned on previous episodes, it's not that bad a movie, definitely doesn't deserve all the hatred it gets. But Batman and Robin made comic book adaptations box office poison. That was until previous episode hero Blade came along. Blade was sharp, teeth and stakes included, it was gory and it was funny. And it took its subject matter reasonably faithfully and seriously, thanks to the creative trifecta of director Stephen Norrington, screenwriter David S. Goya and star producer Wesley Snipes. Blade was a hit. And then the floodgates opened with X-Men starting filming in autumn 1999. But obviously, listen to the episode on X-Men for more information, but that had been in pre-production since the mid-90s. If Blade, a relatively unknown property, could be a big hit, what could X-Men do? What could Spider-Man do? Probably anything a spider can. Spin webs of any size, catch thieves like flies, you know, the norm. Marvel's crown jewel was Spider-Man. He was a character everyone knew and loved. And in 1998, Sony Pictures, led by CEO John Kelly, purchased the picture rights entirely for $7 million, with Marvel keeping 5% of the earnings and 50% of the merchandise. Sony, under this contract, must release a new Spider-Man movie every 5.75 years to retain the license. And it really was the character of Spider-Man and Peter Parker that led to Sony wanting the character. Superhero movies weren't a thing, but a kid from Queens, in a metaphor for growing up, becoming an adult, accepting responsibilities, dealing with grief and loss, and fighting against the dark side to adulthood. These were all things that were relatable to everyone in the audience, not just us nerds. The rights to James Cameron's scriptment were not included in the original deal that Sony signed, but all preceding scripts were, meaning James Cameron was effectively removed from involvement in Spider-Man, as well as his Leonardo DiCaprio headline Spider-Man movie. And instead, Sony lined up several potential big-name directors, including Roland Emmerich, Chris Columbus, Michael Bay, Ang Lee, Tim Burton, Jan de Bont, and David Fincher. Columbus declined to direct Spider-Man for Harry Potter and the Philosopher's Stone. Burton declined due to his association with previous DC Batman movies. It was director Joseph Kahn who, when he pitched Amy Pascal of Sony, his Transformers movie, he did his pitch, and on the way out, he asked her who was directing Spider-Man, because he'd heard there was a Spider-Man movie being made. At the time, Chris Columbus was the first choice. So she replied, probably Columbus. Reportedly, he suggested Sam Raimi to her, and she revealed that Raimi was her personal choice. Khan thought Raimi's visual style was similar to Todd McFarlane's Spider-Man art. Raimi was approached in 1999 and met with Sony Pictures CEO John Kelly, Columbia Pictures Chair Amy Pascal, Marvel Studios Chief Avi Arad, Sony Film Executive Matt Tolak and the film's producer Laura Ziskin. He professed his love for the character, his childhood paintings, that he was a nerdy kid like Peter and respected that Spider-Man wasn't a perfect hero, he had flaws and real-life issues. It was an impassioned plea by a huge fan. And then mid-conversation, Raimi stopped abruptly, thanked everyone for their time and left the meeting because he'd been told he had an hour for his meeting, didn't want to overstay his welcome. Turns out, though, he was very welcome, and by January 2000, he was attached to direct Spider-Man. In a Reddit AMA, Raimi would say he was a huge fan of the character, that Peter Parker and Spider-Man were formative to his teenage years. Raimi was obviously most well-known for his horror franchise, The Evil Dead, 
but he dabbled in the superhero genre in 1990 with the excellent and highly underrated Darkman and the Western genre with The Quick and the Dead. Raimi is actually a huge comic book collector with a reported collection of over 25,000 comic books in his private collection. Watching it now, with its very stylized use of jump scares, it feels quite fitting to have Sam Raimi make this movie. David Coop, who I've mentioned on this podcast before, actually on Jurassic Park, Death Becomes Her and The Long Kiss Goodnight, there's episodes 57, 59 and 88 there. He started work on the screenplay and it's reported he took James Cameron's scriptment and copied parts of it word for word for the first draft. His rewrites substituted the first antagonist, Electro, for the Green Goblin, but originally kept in Dr. Octopus. Raimi decided to drop Dr. Octopus because he felt that having Norman Osborn as a father figure for Peter would make the Green Goblin and Spider-Man relationship more interesting, as well as build up to Peter becoming Spider-Man and build up that moment. Coop also kept Cameron's organic web shooters, something that annoyed hardcore fans at the time, so much so that it was retconned for the subsequent Andrew Garfield and Tom Holland incarnations. Sam Raimi liked the idea, though, because this young kid from Queens had to not only become a hero overnight, he also had to design a suit and maybe also creating mechanical web shooters was a little outside of the realm of possibility for a teenager. Not to mention the obvious web shooters sexual awakening metaphor that Cameron had leaned heavily into in his original scriptment. Scott Rosenberg was hired to undertake rewrites of Coop's script, removing Doc Ock and adding new action sequences. Alvin Sargent was also hired to work on Peter and MJ's dialogue. Columbia would submit James Cameron, Scott Rosenberg and Alvin Sargent as contributors to the Writers Guild of America for credit, but all relinquished their credit for David Coop. When it came to casting, several contributors had different ideas for Peter Parker. Stan Lee wanted John Cusack. Amy Pascal wanted Heath Ledger. And obviously James Cameron had wanted Leonardo DiCaprio. The studio had a long list. Freddie Prince Jr., Chris O'Donnell, Chris Klein, Jude Law, they were all on it, as was Jake Gyllenhaal. And he's someone we're actually going to need to come back to for the episode that I will be doing on Spider-Man 2 a bit later on this year. Because let's just say Jake Gyllenhaal very almost got this part twice. Actors who auditioned included Scott Speedman, Jay Roden, Joe Manganiello, who ended up with the role of Flash Thompson, James Franco, who ended up with the role of Harry Osborn, Sam Raimi preferred Tobey Maguire after seeing him in the Cider House Rules. Maguire was 25 when he was cast as 17-year-old Peter in July 2000 and signed up for two sequels. And really, is there anyone else who could personify Green Goblin other than the great Willem Dafoe? And he was cast after Jason Isaacs, John Malkovich and Nicolas Cage turned the role down. Is now a good time for a Superman Lives reference? Because that's references in episodes on Superman. Batman, Blade, and now Spider-Man. I think I'm done with the Superman Lips references now. But Willem Dafoe would end up in the goblin suit more than originally planned because he felt a stunt person couldn't convey the correct body language and he ended up doing 90% of his own stunts in the process. The green goblin suit was made of 580 pieces, took half an hour to get on, and I'm going to come back to the look of green goblin a little bit later because there was a hell of a lot of pre-production work done on not only the visual effects of Spider-Man, but also the practical effects of Spider-Man. But Willem Dafoe is truly one of the standout performances in this movie. And there are a lot of standout performances in this movie, but he's so deranged and unhinged as Green Goblin, and then so meek and unassuming as Norman Osborn. 
And to put the two together and for him to play off himself in scenes is truly a piece of art. And while 25-year-old Tobey Maguire was suitable for the part of Peter, 27-year-old Elizabeth Banks was turned down for the role of MJ for being too old. She would instead be given the role of Betty Brandt. Kate Hudson was then approached to play MJ, but she turned the role down before Kirsten Dunst auditioned and won the role of Mary Jane Watson. And while Stanley lobbied for the role of J. Jonah Jameson for the canon version, he would relinquish the role he wanted to J.K. Simmons, conceding that Simmons could play the character much better than he ever could. And let's be honest, J.K. Simmons, absolutely perfect in this movie. With a cast in place, filming commenced in January 2001 on Sony's sound stages in Culver City, California, with scenes also shot in New York City at the Queensboro Bridge, Columbia University, the New York Public Library and the Rockefeller Center, with the Flatiron Building doubling for the Daily Bugle. Filming in Los Angeles included at the Natural History Museum, the Pacific Electricity Building and the Greystone Mansion. In early 2001, four Spider-Man costumes were stolen from the set. They were recovered 18 months later. One was found in Japan as well, which is miraculous. And former Sony security guard Jeffrey Glenn Gustafson and his accomplice Robert Hughes were arrested and charged with the theft. And I mentioned visual effects. I also desperately want to talk about the visual effects and I, I kind of need to talk about the visual effects of this movie because Sam Raimi insisted a lot of it be as practical as possible. Obviously, there is a lot of CG in this movie and this is a movie that's criticised quite often in some sections of the internet now for its 20-year-old visual effects. Honestly, mostly these effects still hold up. The Green Goblin was a challenging prospect because he needed to be villainous and quite scary, but not ridiculous or goofy looking. So they brought in Amalgamated Dynamics. I've spoken about Amalgamated Dynamics in several episodes, including Tremors and The Thing. And co-founders Tom Woodruff Jr. and Alec Gillis came on board for a makeup test on an animatronic Green Goblin mask, making the character look very organic and comic book accurate. It would be a mask that came to life when attached to the actor's face, a bit like Jim Carrey's version of the mask in The Mask, but instead of the CG version that Jim Carrey has, it would be a full animatronic mask attached to the actor's face. There's a terrific makeup test video on stanwinstonschool.com, which I'll add in the show notes too, because while the Green Goblin we got was amazing, obviously with the shiny green mask, the one from Amalgamated Dynamics, which obviously didn't get used in the end, is so good. And they go through a range of emotions in this video that the mask can portray. It's really, really great stuff. And it's such a shame that we didn't get that Green Goblin. As much as I love the Green Goblin we got, it's a real shame that we didn't get the Amalgamated Dynamics mask. And if you're going to make a Spider-Man movie, you need to show Spidey swinging through the city. It's one of the most iconic images in the comic book. And it's one of the most iconic images in the movie. Avi Arad would comment on showing Stan Lee the CGI pre-visualization for Spider-Man's swinging through the streets of Manhattan. He would say, one of the greatest moments of Spider-Man was showing Stan Lee for the first time the CGI of Spider-Man flying. I'm looking at him and he was like an uncle, you know? And he whispers in my ear, that's it? And then I realized he doesn't know it's pre-vis. He was new to the technology side of things. He was so disappointed, I almost cried. I said, Stan, the world's never seen anything like it. Yeah, but it doesn't look cool. I told him, don't worry, it will be great. 
Anyhow, when he saw it finished, he had a bunch of tears in his eyes because that's his baby. And you can fully imagine the late Stan Lee seeing these images of a previous CG Spider-Man and going, that's not right. That's not what I envisaged all those years ago. But Stan, we love you. We miss you. And the fact that he was so involved in the making of this movie is testament to him and his creation. Because this is a movie where eventually the CG shots would blend so seamlessly into the live action shots that studio executives couldn't tell the difference between shots of Tobey Maguire and shots of a CG Spider-Man. And it's always hard with mass characters to get them to emote through a mask. Body language is all you can rely on to show emotion. So Sam Raimi wanted the shots of Spider-Man swinging through New York to show as much emotion as possible. The sheer joy and awe of this young man swinging through the city he loves. Special effects supervisor John Dykstra and his crew used composites in New York and they replaced each car in shot with a digital replica. And while some of the CG, especially the shots of Green Goblin flying through the city, do look a little dated, I'll be honest, those shots of Spider-Man swinging through the city don't. In fact, for a long time, I thought that was the actual New York cityscape, but it's not. It's completely rendered. A surprising amount of this movie is real, but a surprising amount of this movie is CG. But to be honest, you just wouldn't know which is which. And that really is the magic of this movie. When it came to the finale, there was a special device that helped make the finale battle between Spider-Man and Green Goblin happen. And that was called Spider-Cam. It's a suspended camera system. And despite the name, Spider-Cam was not made for this movie. Because Spider-Cam was created in 1992 and debuted in Cliffhanger in 1993. Spider-Cam could drop 50 stories, that's over 600 foot, and with shot lengths of just over 2,400 feet or 3,200 feet for shooting in New York City or Los Angeles. It could also shoot at six frames per second to convey a sense of speed in the final sequence. Spider-Cam was only used on Spider-Man in 2002 for that finale, and it would actually be used more in the sequels, which I'm going to come to in a future episode. Now, the spider that bites Peter is often thought of as a 100% CG spider. Because can you really get a real spider trained? Well, Sam Raimi insisted on a real spider. But the scene in which the spider bites Peter is CG because you can't train a spider to bite someone. But for all of the other scenes, the spider is a real spider. It is a Stetoda grosser. And this spider had to audition for the part alongside several other species of spider selected by entomologist Steve Kutcher. Kutcher is a well-known insect wrangler. He's worked with locusts and worms in Hollywood, as well as trained spiders. Stetoda grosser, though, aren't red and blue in real life. They're actually brown. So the spider was anaesthetized and painted red and blue by Kutcher so that it could perform in those scenes. And obviously, there's a lot of colour in this movie. This is a very bright, colourful movie. And speaking of colours, two colours that are often used as backdrops for CG are blue screens and green screens. Everyone knows blue screens and green screens. But the problem, when you have Spider-Man and Green Goblin in a scene together and you need a backdrop, which you can't use a green screen because Green Goblin would disappear. And you can't use a blue screen because Spider-Man would partially disappear. So for these shots, Tobey Maguire and Willem Dafoe were shot separately, Spider-Man in front of a green screen and the Green Goblin in front of a blue one, which makes perfect sense if you think about it logically. And I want to pinpoint a couple of very famous scenes in this movie and I want to talk through what actually happened when it came to filming. So 
There's a very famous scene in this movie where Tobey Maguire as Peter Parker, he has his Spider-Man powers and as Mary Jane walks past him, she slips on some liquid and she falls and her cafeteria tray goes up in the air and Tobey Maguire catches this tray in real time with all of these food items on the tray. Now, this actually did take several takes, but there's a number that's banded around the internet, which is 156 takes. Now, that is not completely accurate because that was a joke by John Dykstra on the DVD commentary where he basically says, oh, take 156, lol. What actually happened was it took several takes for Tobey Maguire to do and how it worked, which is really simple, was crew dropped objects slightly out of frame and there was actually adhesive on certain things. So, for example, there's an apple that lands on the tray. It actually has a little bit of adhesive on the bottom. So when the apple lands, it lands on the adhesive and it sticks to the tray. There's also magnets on the jelly bowl and also on the milk. So when the jelly bowl drops down and lands on the tray, the milk then can land on top and the magnets bring it together. It is still a very impressive effect. It is completely practical and it still looks great. And it just goes to show that with clever editing and practical effects, they still look great after 20 years. And I also have to mention as well, the kiss that spawned a thousand imitations between Tobey Maguire and Kirsten Dunst. They were actually dating during production as well, which probably helped, but the actual kiss itself wasn't the most pleasant experience for either because as Tobey Maguire hung upside down, water from the rain was pouring into his nostrils, basically meaning he couldn't breathe. It was shot on a cold night and both Maguire and Dunst were freezing cold as well. While it was hardly a romantic experience for the two, it would go on and win an MTV Movie Award for Best Kiss in 2003. So, worth it. There is one little piece of trivia that I found out about Spider-Man that I just really love. And it's that Uncle Ben drives Sam Raimi's car. And this is the same car that's also featured in the movie Evil Dead. Regular listeners will know I'm not a huge fan of horror, but I do enjoy Evil Dead because it's just so ridiculous and crazy and I love the makeup effects obviously so I will talk about Evil Dead eventually but I just really love the fact that Uncle Ben drives the same car from Evil Dead. Spider-Man unlike Superman's fictional Metropolis and Batman's fictional Gotham was set in 2002's very real New York City. Unlike many heroes who would go on to live in New York like Tony Stark Peter Parker was born and raised in the city and Spider-Man has always been the friendly neighbourhood hero. And the city of New York is a pivotal character in both the comics and these movies. And in the summer of 2001, Spider-Man looks down on New York City in the posters promoting the upcoming release of the movie, with the twin towers of the World Trade Center mirrored in his eye. After September the 11th, those teaser posters were removed, and Sony raced to remove a teaser video for the film which depicted a bank robber's getaway helicopter entangled in a giant web stretching between the two towers. None of this footage was shot for the movie itself, just for the trailers. They can still be found online if you wish. But in the world's mass pouring of grief for the real heroes of New York, for the first responders, the police, the firefighters, and the thousands of innocent people trapped in the Twin Towers, no one wanted to see a fictional hero appearing to attempt to profit from what happened on 9-11. Images of the World Trade Center appearing in the movie were digitally erased from the finished film and certain scenes were reshot for the movie in respect of 9-11 as well. And interestingly, a young man called Kevin Feige 
worked on Spider-Man as the executive in charge of production for Sam Raimi. Now, Kevin Feige is running Marvel Studios and Sam Raimi worked for him as director of Doctor Strange in the Multiverse of Madness. Basically, what I'm saying is bosses always be nice to your underlings because you never know they could be your boss in future. Speaking of people who are the absolute boss, we're going to move to the obligatory Keanu reference of this episode. If you don't know what that means, it's where I try to link the movie that I'm featuring with Keanu Reeves. And it's always really hard for Keanu and Marvel movies because normally there's a lot of clickbait online when it comes to Marvel movies and Keanu. And I've mentioned this before. And I, to be honest, I don't tend to pay a lot of mind to clickbait. But several factions of the internet, when I searched for Keanu and Spider-Man, were mooting Keanu for a role in a Spider-Man sequel as Craven the Hunter. It doesn't feel as clickbaity as some of the other stuff that I've heard about him in the past. Let's talk about the music for Spider-Man. So the score was, of course, composed by Danny Elfman. One of his most memorable scores as well, I think. And really, when you're talking about Danny Elfman, he's done a lot of memorable scores. He would spend a year in Africa studying African percussion for use in this score. The movie would also include a song by Chad Kroger featuring Josie Scott. It is a song called Hero. And I know so many people have a rather unjust hatred for Nickelback. I personally don't. But Hero is a bop. Don't come for me in the comments or on social media. Hero is an absolute bop. It was nominated for Best Song Written for a Motion Picture, Television or Other Visual Media, Best Rock Performance by a Duo or Group with Vocal and Best Rock Song at the 45th Grammy Awards. It wouldn't win any of those. There was a song by Stone Temple Pilots called All in the Suit That You Wear but this was pulled from the soundtrack at the last minute as they could not get it as the lead track. So, we need to talk about Spider-Man's release. It was released on the 3rd of May 2002 in the US, where it immediately debuted at number one in the US box office. Star Wars Episode Two: Attack of the Clones would come out in Spider-Man's second week and still didn't dethrone Spidey. Yes, Spider-Man beat a Star Wars movie by a substantial amount of money too. Uh, it would eventually acquiesce the number one position to Star Wars in Star Wars' second week. But still, that is quite a feat. And that goes some way to showing how big Spider-Man actually was. But before we talk about financials, the MPAA almost gave Spider-Man an R rating, which led to the climactic fight between Spider-Man and Green Goblin being cut slightly, leading to a PG-13 rating. Now, over here in the UK, when the BBFC rated the movie a 12 in England, they went on record saying it was the most violent film aimed at younger audiences they had ever seen. Due to the levels of personal violence and the predominant retribution motif, the distributor requested a PG rating, which was denied. Many parents were upset by the ruling, expressing their disappointment that their children would not be allowed to legally attend the film. So the movie was re-released with a new 12A classification in August 2002, along with a fresh marketing campaign emphasising that youngsters could now see the film. And just for the avoidance of doubt, 12A means anyone under 12 has to be accompanied by an adult, whereas previously no one under the age of 12 would be admitted to the cinema. So this was a huge change for the movie and no doubt contributed to it being as big as it was. So... Let's talk about how big this movie actually was. On a $139 million budget, Spider-Man would earn 
$403.8 million domestically in the US, $418 million internationally, for a worldwide gross of $821.7 million. Bear in mind, this is 2002. In the US, it broke the record for the biggest opening day, $39.4 million, the highest box office gross in a single day on its second day of release, $43.7 million, and it was the first film to pass $100 million in a single weekend. It became the highest grossing superhero movie of all time on its release, the largest May opening weekend ever at the time. It reached $200 million on its ninth day of release, also a record at the time, surpassing the previous record set by Star Wars Episode One: The Phantom Menace. It hit $300 million in just 22 days. It's still the sixth biggest grossing comic book film of all time, adjusted for inflation as of 2020. Spider-Man was the highest grossing superhero origin movie for 15 years until Wonder Woman broke the record in 2017. And with global box office receipts topping $8.2 billion, the Spider-Man films as a complete entity are currently the highest grossing single superhero franchise ever. That's more than Batman, more than Iron Man, more than Captain America, <laughs> more than Thor, more than everyone. As I said, that includes three Toby movies, two Andrew movies, three Tom movies, and the outstanding Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse as well. It would also sell 7 million DVDs on its first day of home video release, and that was a record held until Finding Nemo in 2003. And I don't need to talk about how critically revered this movie is because pretty much everyone loves this movie. 90% on Rotten Tomatoes, even though, yeah, it's aggregate score. It's not always worth the paper it's printed on. But critically, pretty much everyone loves this movie and has done for 20 years. At the 75th Academy Awards, it was nominated for Best Sound and Best Visual Effects. It would lose to Chicago and The Lord of the Rings, The Two Towers, respectively. It was also nominated for a BAFTA for Best Special Visual Effects losing again to The Lord of the Rings, The Two Towers. But it did receive that MTV Movie Award for Best Kiss. And there's so many Spider-Man movies. There's so many sequels. And when I say sequels, I'm talking about the whole franchise. I'm not just talking about Spider-Man, Spider-Man 2 and Spider-Man 3. I'm going to talk about everything. So Spider-Man 2 followed in 2004. And yes, that movie is definitely one I'm going to come to in September, just FYI. Spider-Man 3 followed in 2007. It's the most maligned in the Maguire series. Spider-Man 4 was shelved despite the financial performance of Spider-Man 3. It reportedly went through four revisions. It was to include The Vulture and Black Cat, but Sam Raimi didn't like any of the scripts, and so Sony cancelled Spider-Man 4 in 2010. Instead, they went ahead with rebooting the franchise with director Mark Webb in 2012 with The Amazing Spider-Man, starring Andrew Garfield, who's great, by the way, legitimately great. I'm a huge fan of Andrew Garfield's Spider-Man. The Amazing Spider-Man 2 followed in 2014, Remember the 5.75 year rule that I mentioned? So The Amazing Spider-Man arrived in June 2012, four years and 11 months after Spider-Man 3's release. Three years after The Amazing Spider-Man 2, we got Tom Holland in Spider-Man Homecoming in 2017, Spider-Man Far From Home in 2019 and Spider-Man No Way Home in 2021, all directed by John Watts. We also got the character played by Tom Holland in Captain America Civil War in 2016 as well as Avengers Infinity War and Endgame. Done episodes on all of those. Episodes 73, 99 and 100. We also got the best Spider-Man movie ever made. The 2018 Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse, which is getting two sequels. 
Spider-Man Across the Spider-Verse, which is coming out in June 2023, and Spider-Man Beyond the Spider-Verse in March 2024. Those movies obviously introduced us to another version of Spider-Man Miles Morales, as well as Spider-Gwen, Penny Parker, Spider-Man Noir. And I didn't mention it earlier, but there are many different alternate versions of Spider-Man in the comic books that we haven't met yet in film. There's Man-Spider, there's Spider-Cyborg, there's Patton Parnell, there's Cosmic Spider-Man, there's Six-Arm Spider-Man, there's Spider-Wolf, Spider-Ling, Spinneret, Spider-Girl, and in Across the Spider-Verse, we did have a teaser of him at the end of Into the Spider-Verse. We are going to be getting Spider-Man 2099, Miguel O'Hara, played by the inimitable Oscar Isaac, who I love. So there are going to be new versions of Spider-Man coming. Maybe some of the ones I've mentioned above are going to be in these new Spider-Verse movies. So it's a really exciting time to be a Spider-Man fan right now. There's also, in Sony's Spider-Man universe, which is a thing, apparently, there's several spin-offs for Spider-Man. So there was Venom in 2018, Venom Let There Be Carnage in 2021, Morbius in 2022. I mentioned Morbius last episode on Blade. There's also going to be a Craven the Hunter movie. Not starring Keanu Reeves, unfortunately. Coming out in 2023. Madam Web, also coming out in 2023. And El Muerto, coming out in 2024. Apparently, there's also going to be a Venom Let There Be Carnage sequel as well. And there's other films in continued development, including The Sinister Six, which was originally talked about in 2013. It was then put on hold, but now is alive again, following the success of Venom. There's also reportedly going to be a Spider-Woman movie. It's not been confirmed, but Olivia Wilde signed on to develop and direct a female-centric Marvel film. No confirmation as to what that's going to be, but it's believed it's going to be Spider-Woman. There's also a television series in development called Silk, which is centred on the character Cindy Moon, aka Silk. So yeah, there's lots going on when it comes to Spider-Man. But that's just live-action stuff, so let's just quickly run through the animated series. Spider-Man 1967, Spider-Man 1981, Spider-Man and His Amazing Friends 1981, Spider-Man 1994, Spider-Man Unlimited 1999, Spider-Man The New Animated Series 2003, The Spectacular Spider-Man 2008, Ultimate Spider-Man 2012, Spider-Man 2017, Spidey and His Amazing Friends 2021, and the forthcoming Spider-Man Freshman Year. And that's barely touching the surface of Spider-Man in media. There's so much Spider-Man stuff out there. I simply cannot go through it all. Apologies if I've missed off your favourite Spider-Man TV series or animated series or animated movie. I'm really sorry, but there's a lot of Spider-Man out there. There's a multitude of video games, but there is a Spider-Man specific video game based on this movie. It was developed by Treyarch and published by Activision, released in 2002 for the Game Boy Advance, GameCube. Windows, PlayStation 2 and Xbox. Basically, Spider-Man is everywhere. Spider-Man is more prolific in many ways than Batman is. And I think that's why this episode is going to be huge. I'm going to put it out there. I think this episode is going to be way bigger than Batman and way bigger than Superman because there's so much that I haven't said about Spider-Man. I've actually had to trim this episode down because it was so big. But something that I'm not going to trim down is social media thoughts. So I ask on Patreon and across social media what people think of the movies that I'm featuring. And we're going to start with the patrons, of course. I'm going to start with perennial commenter Andy, 
who says, I mean, could you find a more perfect storm than Spider-Man? You were able to find the right cast, the right director, the right composer, and the right screenplay all at the same time. Now that deserves some celebrating. Sam Raimi found the best property to allow his unique vision into the mainstream. And while I love everything that Maguire and Defoe bring to their roles, the award for most perfect casting ever goes to J.K. Simmons as J. Jonah Jameson, whose every scene is right out of a comic book. A fantastic movie, only made more perfect in the form of Spider-Man 2, and possibly the one series outside of the MCU that my kids genuinely enjoy. And as I mentioned, Peter Parker is just a bit of a geek, really. And if you like geeky stuff like Peter Parker, then you might like Andy's podcast. It's called Geek Salad. And like Peter Parker, they love really geeky stuff. So whether you like movies, music, TV shows, games, whatever, then you'll find that a Geek Salad. And I like to give patrons who have podcasts a bit of a plug. So I'll pop some information on Geek Salad in the show notes. We also have a patron comment from Brendan who says, There are films I love because of when I saw them. There are films I love because of how great they are. And then there are films where I'll just never know exactly where they fall. I was about to enter my final year of high school when Sam Raimi's Spider-Man dropped. I'll forever associate it with the summer when I started dating the woman who I'd marry a few years later. A time in which it genuinely felt like living a John Hughes movie. I'd been a Spidey fan most of my life and a Sam Raimi fan the moment I saw Army of Darkness. And this film gave me the most of what I love about both, along with some of the most note-perfect casting in the history of adapting a visual medium. Not just J.K. Simmons, but everyone knows he owns this category. There are bits that show their age after 20 years, and later stabs at the character have done a better job with MJ, though Dunst is underrated and particularly impressive in what she can convey non-verbally, but the beating heart of this film is still a thing of beauty. And the final patron comment comes from Derek, who says, This movie was a game-changer, giving birth to the modern superhero genre, a comic-accurate, full-scale Marvel adventure unlike anything before it. Willem Dafoe crushes it as the Green Goblin. Can't disagree with that, Derek. And Derek, along with his wife, Laurel, they host the amazing podcast, The Midnight Myth, where they basically look at modern pop culture with a historical, philosophical and mythological lens. And it's genuinely one of my favourite podcasts. And I don't think that it's against the law for me to say this, but I'm actually going to be guesting on a really special episode of The Midnight Myth coming up. And I'm so excited because I'm actually going to be recording that really, really soon. So yeah, keep a lookout for that. I will definitely be mentioning that on social media because it might be on the greatest movie ever made. Anyway, enough of that little plug for The Midnight Myth because we're going to move over to Twitter. And Twitter have really come through again with comments for Spider-Man. So we're going to start with at D.W. Lundberg, who said, The comic book film par excellence. Not a perfect movie, mind you. It's a little too indebted to the Lee Ditko run, but a perfect distillation of what comics look and feel like in live action. It's bright, colourful and sincere and leaves lots of room for improvement. At Needy Rhodes said, Arguably, there would be no Iron Man leading to the MCU if Raimi's 2002 original wasn't the monster success it was paving the way. At Mr. London underscore NCB said, I really enjoyed it at the time as the superhero landscape was patchy at best. That said, I think it struggles to hold a candle to Marvel's recent canon. At Not That Bad Cast said, Great cast, well directed. The only thing that stood out against was Goblin and Spidey's rooftop conversation. 
With the rigidness of Green Goblin's mask and Spidey's mask, eyes unable to move, felt like a home movie with action figures. No Way Home made Defoe's Green Goblin even better too. At the Middlebourne said, It's brilliant and wonderfully directed. It has exceptional performances, world-building and a deep sense of morality that carries the hero to heights none had reached before. Toby will forever be my Spidey and his whole trilogy holds a special place in my heart. At Harley Mumford said, I love this movie. The direction, the score and the cast really come together to tell a brilliant version of Spider-Man's origin. I think a big standout is Willem Dafoe's Norman Osborn Green Goblin. His performance is so wild and entertaining whilst also being genuinely scary. At Andrew Gorge said, Having only had the 70s live-action Spidey and cartoons as an option before this came out, I was super excited to go and see this back in the day. I may have even got so into it my friends said I was ducking and weaving in my seat during all the fights. At Kid Creole 3 said, One of my favourite comic book movies, full of action, goofiness and heart. I miss these kinds. At Rob J. Robbie said, Sticking a mask on one of the best facial actors in Willem Dafoe was a mistake rectified in No Way Home. The score is an iconic part of the film for me. It really helps you get a sense of a character exploring his new abilities for the good and the bad. At Jonathan Blade said, 20 years later and I'm still upset that Topher Grace didn't get this part. Maguire is a great year one Peter, but his neurodivergent take on the character never satisfyingly evolves. Nevertheless, Raimi's movies as an homage to Lee and Ditko is at its most effective here. And at Ever Trending Pod said, This is still a fun comic book movie after all this time. It's a great journey to take Peter to his powers and the setup to the villain and the universe itself was done well. It's not perfect, but it's still a good time. Moving over to Instagram, we have at Sean Geek Podcast who said, Revolutionised nerds to the mainstream, this was our movie. The one we always wanted made from the character many of us identified with so closely. And this time our hero was out there on a level with all the normal people. This was the movie everyone saw and allowed us nerds to have our spotlight in the world. Suddenly the nerds who were picked on weren't so uncool and we weren't so weird. This is the film that mainstreamed us. At SP underscore film viewers said, Although this isn't perhaps the strongest of the Maguire series of the years have gone on, it's a solid origin story that still holds up. Spider-Man is Paul's favourite superhero though and had a strong connection with him since seeing the 90s cartoon on TV as a wee lad. And at Friendly Sparpod said, Spider-Man is my favourite superhero of all time because he wasn't a billionaire playboy or someone who had it all figured out. He was just a nerd like me. I will always hold a fondness for this film because they really let us see that. The trilogy as a whole deserves some scrutiny, but this stands alone as one of the better Spider-Man movies we've seen. And finally, over on Facebook, we have Tony who says, Spider-Man was an excellent movie, an amazing introduction into the character for non-comics fans. For those who are comics fans, they got to see many comic events portrayed on the big screen. Also one of the first cameo appearances by Smiling Stan Lee. And as always, a huge thank you to everyone, to the patrons, to Twitter, Facebook and Instagram for really coming through with Spider-Man comments. I think everyone can say that this is universally beloved in so many ways, or at least universally admired in so many ways. I don't know anyone who has a bad thing to say about this movie, but I'm really grateful to everyone for sparing their time and for giving their comments on this movie. So a huge thank you to everyone for your comments. 2002 was a huge year for movies, especially sequels, 
Let's just go through a few of them. There was The Lord of the Rings, The Two Towers, Star Wars Episode Two: Attack of the Clones, Harry Potter and the Chamber of Secrets, Austin Powers in Goldmember, Men in Black 2, Die Another Day. All of them had a previously successful movie or two behind them, all of them vying for the eyes and hearts and ticket stubs of cinema goers across the world. And then there was Spider-Man. Well, it didn't garner the biggest box office worldwide because that honour goes to The Lord of the Rings, The Two Towers. Domestically in the US, Spider-Man webshot everything else into submission, becoming domestically in the US the highest grossing movie of 2002. And I don't think anyone saw that coming. Tobey Maguire as Spider-Man, directed by Sam Raimi? How on earth could this work? And truthfully, it worked because it told a human story, not a superhuman one. Spider-Man as a character has always appealed. And while the organic web shooters didn't quite appeal to the fans, the organic everyman's journey to great power and great responsibility did. That's why the Uncle Ben line has been uttered time immortal. It means something. It takes the melancholy, Peter's insecurities and ambitions and told a relatable story. You didn't need to be a comic reader to understand it. You just needed to be able to empathise with humanity and teenage angst. But the other thing about this movie was it was still proud of its comic roots. It didn't try to hide it, unlike X-Men did with the black leather costumes. Spidey was spandex proud. And to have the city of New York so vibrant and having a hero defend it was exactly what the world needed to see after the atrocities of 9-11. New York and its everyday heroes would play an even more pivotal part in Spider-Man 2, which I'm going to come to when I do that episode. Tobey Maguire might not have been the wisecracking Spider-Man that fans wanted, but he embodies the earnest, nerdy Peter. Willem Dafoe, the literal Dafoe of this movie, yeah, I'm going there, He's crazed perfection as Norman and the Green Goblin. J.K. Simmons is so perfect as J. Jonah Jameson that he's J. Jonah Jameson in literally every universe. Of course, there are things that don't hold up after 20 years, such as a homophobic line and the fact that the great Kirsten Dunst is relegated to no more than a damsel in distress, something that would evolve through Emma Stone as Gwen Stacy and then Zendaya as Michelle M.J. Jones. The CG isn't always great, but honestly, those scenes of Spider-Man swinging through New York are Spidey-sense tinglingly good. Ultimately, Peter Parker is always going to be the quintessential underdog, the guy who tries to constantly do right, sacrifices love and suffers the consequences. When given the trolley problem, save one person or save many, Peter chooses to save everyone. And that's who Spider-Man is. This movie did exactly what it needed to do and opened the doors for superhero cinema to flourish. Superhero cinema that could pay homage to, respect and love its roots. With great power comes great responsibility. Spider-Man showed that its power is in its responsibility for what would come. As for what happens next, let's do this one more time. Thank you for listening. As always, I would love to hear your thoughts on Spider-Man. And if you have enjoyed this podcast and you want to get involved, you can get involved and you can help this podcast grow and you can do it for free and really, really easy as well. So if you want to have your comments read out in episodes, all you need to do is comment on the thoughts posts that go up on social media. They usually go up on a Saturday. Leave a comment underneath and I will read it out and I will credit you for that comment. It's really that easy. You can also help this podcast to reach more listeners by 
telling your friends and family about this podcast, especially if they're a Spider-Man fan, because spoiler alert, there is more Spider-Man coming very soon. You can also retweet or like posts on social media. My social media is at Verbal Diorama on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram. And you can also leave a rating or review wherever you found this podcast as well. And if you like this episode on Spider-Man, you might also like. Of course, I'm going to recommend episode 32 because it's on Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse. It's the only other Spider-Man movie that I've covered. And it is, if I may say, the greatest Spider-Man movie ever made. Now, obviously, it's an animated movie, but don't let that put you off because it's one of the most glorious animated movies ever made. And it is legitimately a great Spider-Man movie, in my opinion. Like I say, I think it's the best. It's so good. And when we're talking about Spider-Man, Spider-Man is in the multiverse now in live action, but Spider-Man was in the multiverse in Spider-Verse. And it's got a great cast and it's got great music and honestly, some of the most beautiful visuals that have ever been put to screen. So if you like this movie, I guarantee you will love Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse. Please find that movie. Please watch it immediately. I'm also going to recommend episode 56, which is my episode on X-Men. And I'm going to join that with episode 154, which is the previous episode on Blade, because this is really the start of superhero cinema. And I talk about this in all of those episodes about what each of those movies did to really kickstart superhero cinema. Obviously, it started with Blade in 1998, X-Men in 2000, and then Spider-Man in 2002. I've also done an episode on X-Men 2 as well, which came out in 2003. But all of those movies did very specific things to really kickstart superhero cinema. And we've kind of forgotten about that now because we're so used to the MCU and we're really spoiled for choice with superhero cinema. Back in the late 90s and early 2000s, we weren't. We had these tentpole releases, but they each brought something so different to the genre and basically made it into a genre. So yeah, episode 56 X-Men, episode 154 Blade. Check those episodes out and obviously watch those movies if you haven't because they're really, really good. Obviously, give me feedback. I know I could have recommended all sorts of episodes that have featured Spider-Man, Captain America Civil War, Avengers Infinity War, Avengers Endgame. I did mention those episodes in this episode. Absolutely, listen to everything that I've ever done on Spider-Man, but give me feedback. Let me know what you think. So we're continuing Heroes Through the Decades. We've been to the 60s, the 70s, the 80s, the 90s, and is it the noughties? Yeah, we're going to call it the noughties. So after the noughties, after the new millennium, we're going into the 2010s. And this is where superhero cinema starts to get a little bit busy because in the 2000s, there were a few superhero movies that came out in the 2000s. And then in the 2010s, it all blew up. And honestly, choosing something to cover in the 2010s was quite difficult. But to be honest, I've covered a lot of superhero cinema from the 2010s already. And I specifically wanted something Marvel. And I specifically wanted to talk about a franchise that was rebooted. Because as I mentioned in this episode, Spider-Man was rebooted in the 2010s. Now, I'm not going to be talking about The Amazing Spider-Man. As much as I would like to talk about The Amazing Spider-Man, because as I said, Andrew Garfield is really great. And those movies are better than a lot of people give them credit for. But 
rebooting existing superhero stories started to become a bit of a thing in the 2010s. But where I'm going to go is I'm actually going to be going to 2011. It's a movie franchise that I've featured several times on this podcast already. In 2000, X-Men came out. In 2003, X-Men 2 came out. In 2006, X-Men The Last Stand came out. In 2009, X-Men Origins Wolverine, a spin-off of the X-Men series, came out. And then, in 2011, the franchise was rebooted with X-Men First Class. Now, I've talked about doing X-Men First Class before, and technically, I have done a movie in that franchise because way back when, at the start of when I did this podcast, I did an episode on X-Men Dark Phoenix, which had just come out at the cinema at the time. And so I'm kind of going a little bit backwards on this because I've already done Dark Phoenix. But now, for the next episode, for episode 156, I'm going to be doing X-Men First Class. And really, this is a movie that I think no one thought was going to be any good. And then look at what we got. We got James McAvoy, Michael Fassbender and Jennifer Lawrence headlining the rebooted X-Men series, which would all change again with Days of Future Past, but that's for a future episode. But join me next week when I talk about the 2011 franchise reboot, X-Men First Class, and what that meant for reboots going forward. Now, you can support this podcast without paying a penny. But if you do want to support the show financially, you can do so if you go to verbaldiorama.com slash Patreon. And a huge thank you, as always, to the patrons of Verbal Diorama, Simon E., Sade, Claudia, Simon B., Laurel, Derek, Vern, Kristin, Kat, Andy, Mike, Griff, Luke, Emily, Michael, Scott, Brendan, Ian M., Lisa, Sam, Will, Jack, Dave, Chris, Stuart, Ian D., Sunny and Drew. With great patrons comes great responsibility. You can also check out my merch stores, verbaldiorama.com slash merch if you want to buy merch, but if you don't, that's cool too. You can get in touch with me, verbaldiorama at gmail.com. You can say hi, you can give me feedback, or you can pop over to verbaldiorama.com where you can see all the latest episodes and you can also fill out a contact form. And you can also find me at filmstories.co.uk you can buy copies of the magazine that I write for. It's called Film Stories, by the way. And you can also read articles that I write online. And finally, I'm holding out for a hero. Bye. Movie should know. Movie should know.